0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. How much do you let your kids do by themselves? Do you let them help with cooking? Or if you have a tween or a teen, are you really okay to let them go to a movie with their mates on a Friday night without an adult? Or is it way too scary for you? I'm Maggie Dent and every year I get the same question from parents How can I raise a resilient child? I get it. We all want our kids to handle the challenges, the stress and the adversity of life. But how can you do that when your gut feeling is to absolutely cover them with your love and protection so that they don't ever get hurt? So I've gone back into the parental archives to bring you this absolute gold, our episode on Building Resilience. This has been one of our most popular episodes ever. We had a huge response to this, so we're bringing it to you again. Because as hard as it is, letting your kids spend for themselves is exactly what they need. This is Parental as Anything. Loretta could dress herself probably when she was about two and a half. I think learning to dress herself was a real priority and she frankly didn't want me dressing her at all after that. Vinny, um, because Vinny has Down syndrome and struggles with fine motor coordination and that sort of thing, it's a bit harder for him. He can get his undies on, get his tracky-dacks on, But if he's wearing jeans, he can't do up the button on his jeans or do up buttons on a shirt. But he can get T-shirts on, not necessarily the right way round. But I still think
1: I do help him quite a lot. It's hard to give him the time that he needs to dress himself. My five-year-old's desperate to always be on his bike by himself and I don't feel he's ready for that because I'm not sure he's going to stop always and I'm a little bit nervous about it. When he turned six, I said, OK, you can go go on your bike and go around the block, but I want to see you back here. And the whole time I was just holding my breath, (laughs) waiting for him to come around the corner of the driveway. And of course he did. You know, he was totally fine and in his mind he knew he could do it, so he probably could. It was just me being nervous.
0: My son has been going to the shop on his own to buy me salt and vinegar chips for dessert since he was about five and he loves it. My daughter is 13 and will still get her younger brother to do it for her. I feel like if kids are independent, they have the most potential to master things on their own. I feel like that builds confidence and I feel that like that builds self-esteem and maybe that leads to resilience. Well done, Mum. You've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so how much do you know about resilience? why it matters and how we can build it in our children. Because seriously, we want our children to be capable, competent adults one day. Lynn Worsley is the go-to expert on resilience in Australia. She wrote The Resilience Donut, The Secret of Strong Kids, and The Resilience Donut, The Secret of Strong Adults. Lynn, if you had a brand new first-time mum ask you how she can start building resilience in her newborn baby, what would you tell her?
2: Okay, there would be two things I'd be encouraging. First of all, nest herself in a supportive environment for herself. Give herself at least uh, four or five people that she's able to turn to and that she hangs out with and she does life with because that way she can start learning her own resilience in the ordinary everyday. But The second thing I would do is to learn to push the pause button. So when you learn to push the pause button with a child, you let the child develop their own capacity to think through the issue that's at hand and they start to work out how to uh, navigate and negotiate even from the age of one week. So when you push the pause button, it means you don't jump in as soon as they cry. You don't jump in as soon as they fall over. You don't jump in as soon as they've given out a little squeak and they've woken up. You, You pause and you let them just have a little bit of time that they can solve it themselves. And that becomes a really beautiful reflective moment that the child can then look at you and work out whether that's okay and then look at the situation and start developing the skills for their own competence.
0: All of our choices do come from a place of love.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so,
0: you know, I know that there are parents who will think, um, if the child falls over, I want to scoop them up immediately and take away their pain. Um, And what we're saying is, hang on a minute,
2: they are a little bit more capable if we give them that space. Yes. And if we actually look at the definition of resilience, it's a process. It's not an end point. Someone isn't born resilient. Someone doesn't end up resilient. They're always in the process. And I think to summarise resilience, it's like social navigation and negotiation. And that means it's a two-way street. So you have the child learning to navigate but you're also having the adult learning to negotiate with that child as well. And we all know as adults, we learn a lot more through parenting and we change a lot more through parenting. And oftentimes it's the child that changes us. You know, the life skills we do have to
0: teach our toddlers can be really frustrating. And I do remember a five-year-old who couldn't put food in their mouth because apparently when he did it as a toddler and it was very messy, the mum decided to do it. So it wasn't messy. So To gain these competences sometimes, it is messy, isn't it? It's messy.
2: And it's, oh, how long do they take to get dressed? Yes. It's also about how to work out how to tip that spoon the right way. It's also how to work out how to put the shoes on the right way, and you only learn that by putting them on the wrong way. And that mistakes are kind of normal in the building of capacity, and
0: I think that's a really important thing that, um, you know, sometimes they can master, can't they, drinking out of a cup without a, you know, a lid or, you know and then a week later they can't do it again. Yes. So we know that some learning even though you think it's got into solid memory they're still mastering all those yes, all those senses at the same time. So I guess a big message is try not to get too frustrated as your child's doing these capacity building things early on and that there's no race.
2: Yes. And I think too we need to be thinking differently in terms of parenting about whether we're managing the child to get through or we're raising the child to get through. There's two different terms. Managing means you, you know, you do everything for them and you get through and you're tidy and you're organised and they know they get to school and they get home and they don't forget their lunch and they don't make mistakes. But raising a child, it's messy, it's untidy, there's lots of failures and there's lots of tears and there's lots of negotiation and navigation. And in that process, if we're thinking about raising the child, you have a process where the child makes many mistakes, but they're useful mistakes. So to even use that term, oh, that was a useful mistake. What did you learn from that? How did you manage to fix that one up? Oh, wow. Do you think you might remember that next time? Now that's messy. You've probably got stuff spilled all over the floor. You've probably got yogurt in places that you shouldn't have yogurt. But at the same time, the child has learned how to navigate that whole process.
0: So um, we are both familiar with the work of Bonnie Bernard. I think she's been called the mother of resilience in a term. So she did a lot of study around children at risk and then suddenly worked out it was far better for them to have a look at what things were helping them survive and thrive. That means we're now looking at the positives in their lives and that's exactly where you began with this resilience donut. Can you explain why it's so beneficial to sometimes work at what's working rather than always
2: trying to fix what's a bit working? Okay, one of the things that I did was to understand what happens with people who were resilient or seemed to be more resilient than others in my own life and in probably other studies. And so what we found was that those people who had more resilience or seemed to be able to bounce back from difficulties had the option of seven different factors that might actually help keep them buoyant. And so we made that into a model and the model looks like a donut, hence it's called the resilience donut. It has an inside circle and an outside circle. And the inside circle is there's three things. Yeah. I have, I am, and I can. You might say, oh, I have people to help me cope or I am a nice person or I can do something to change the circumstances. But you'd get those messages and you will have learnt those messages by navigating and negotiating with seven different areas, which is the next part of the donut, the fleshy part of the donut. Your parent factor, if you're a child. The next one is the skill factor where you can go, yes, I can do that. Your family, so it might be aunties, uncles, grandparents, their peer factor, the friends that they've got in their lives where they've had to navigate and negotiate in the playground. It might be their education factor where they have a teacher who is just gold, who sees the life of them. It may be in a community. It might be that you're nested in this beautiful neighbourhood where you know everybody in the street. And the last one is your money factor, which isn't necessarily about how much money you earn, but it's how you earn and how you save and how you bring things to life in your life by doing things for others versus taking it all on yourself. So the beauty of the donut is that we actually set up a system that gets you to check out where the strengths are. And when you find the strong factors... It dissolves the others. You don't even look at the others that aren't so strong. You just concentrate on the three factors that are working. And I often talk about having donut moments. So a lot of my clients, when they come to see me, before they have medication, before they do anything else, we set up some donut moments. And the donut moments are when you can put three of those factors together at any one point of time. And when those donut moments occur, you flood the brain with positive, intentional connections that build the resilience of your own psyche. So you then have that as a memory and you can go on even in the nursing home, sitting in a rocking chair, thinking about all of those donut moments you've had over your life that will sustain you in the difficult times ahead. So based
0: on your model, again, what sorts of things would you, you know, what words of advice can you put in that parent's hand about helping their child to step forward in a positive way?
2: Start looking around the donut. I actually think about having a conversation around the donut and working out where the strengths are. And it may be a conversation or just an observation as a parent to find out where your child's face lights up where they feel a little bit more connected.
0: Can you put it out of 10? Is that a possible
2: way to? Yes, too? you could score at zero, zero yeah. to 10. So the ones that are scoring more than zero or more than the others, um, that you'll find that you'll have the most likely good connections. And then can we can have a chat about how can we
0: get more of that happening in their life. Yeah.
2: So what you can do then is just concentrate on those three areas. So you could look at those and just build more of them. I always think about like, you know, let's say one of them is scoring five. What would you have to do to score at six? So what would you do to actually build it up just a little bit more? But you don't concentrate on the low numbers. You don't go, oh, look, you know, they don't have any friends, mm. so I'm going to go and try and concentrate on more friends. Well, that's not helpful. What's actually helpful is to find out where their strengths are. So one of the things as a parent as of a teen is to actually start thinking about, well, where is my child getting some connections that are intentional? People who actually invested in their moral character, who, who is actually looking out for making them a better person. Um, so it may be a teacher. It may be somebody that's one of their best friends. It might be somebody else's mum that they seem to talk to a little bit better, which is a bit hard as a parent to hear that. But it's gold, particularly if that mum is a little bit like your best friend too. So what's really helpful is to start looking around and seeing who can I set up to be more connected with them. Absolutely. Now, sometimes that might mean making decisions that make you feel like you're not the best mum or dad. It might mean that you you want your child to do really well at school and you want them to study, but that's not their strength. Their strength might be skateboarding. They might be skateboarding like really well with some neighbours that may not necessarily be the sort of kids you want your kid to hang out with, but they seem to laugh and smile a lot and they seem to be a lot happier when they come back in from skateboarding. So, my suggestion would be to sort of keep an eye out for where those golden moments happen. I call it the, the spark. sparkling yes. moments. The <laughs> sparkling moments. I often give the example of my son when he was going through school. Very clever little boy, didn't really want to do anything at school, wasn't doing all that great at school, but could drum. He would drum the saucepans, the table, he would drum everything you could possibly imagine. He was drumming. It was annoying. <laughs> But what did we do when we got to that point? We went, okay, it's some mastery. He needs to master this. And I'm just going to drop the whole academic yeah. stuff. Let's drum and go into competitions. Let's do as much drumming as we can. And let's see who in our community who is also a drummer. So we linked up with a drummer who was able to take him to the drum lessons, who was able to put him into the drum community. By the end of year 12, what did he say? think before I do the HSC mum, I think I might need to have a little bit of coaching with English and maths because I think I haven't done any work, which was true, (laughs) but he actually did well. And I think what the reason he did well, not because he hadn't done any work and he binged at the last minute, but what it it meant was that he had developed this mastery with something that he knew he could do. And when he could do it, he then went harder. So it was almost like, pushing past that threshold of, of it's hard, but I'm, I'm going to conquer it. And once he'd done that, he then worked out that he could conquer the things that he hadn't done so well with.
1: I'd love them to be independent, though I find uh, nowadays the safety factor, you know, is high on my radar. Probably I would let my 10-year-old, 10, 11-year-old go to the shops now on her own, but still fairly restricted
2: Some of my neighbours go to the same school or rather their kids go to the same school they have decided to send their kids on the bus their kids are a bit older and it's also a public bus not a dedicated school bus and so you can't really tell who's going to get on our kids are nine and six and so we just felt like too much risk
1: from my experience, I feel like there's a bit more of a mutual respect when you give them that freedom. If they're asking for something and and they receive it, then in turn they give you back that knowledge of, you've trusted me, so I'm going to do the right thing.
2: It's a real challenge for parents to let their kids go off and do things because we're surrounded by all these doomsday stories and terrible stories that have happened to other families. But I'm all for letting a I guess, cultivate her own independence as quickly as possible. So I'm more than happy for her to make some mistakes and so on, and it's up to me to put some safety parameters around it, I guess.
0: We know that taking risks is one of the big things that we need to help and facilitate our children to do because I know um, I was speaking to a 16-year-old girl in Perth one day who was telling me that all of her friends are dropped at the door of the school and they could jump on a train or a bus, but they don't. And so her thought is, as she's watched this over the three years that she's been doing it, she has worked out all sorts of new knowledge, negotiation uh, around when you don't feel safe, where do you sit? What do you do when it's really crowded? And She's actually done all this extra learning. Mm. And she said, so I'm much more likely to be brave enough to travel the world one day.
2: Mm. And I I think they're missing something. Yes. I think too, when you've got a shy or an anxious child, um, good parenting is often responding to that. And quite often we will respond by looking after them and rescuing them. And that's actually the shy and anxious child's ability to navigate and negotiate their parents to fix things for them. But it's not helpful. So the studies that we've done with children who have got what we call behavioural inhibition actually means, um, has shown that really that the parents who are over-controlling and step in and help them actually make it worse. So listen to yourself. If you've been evoked to do something to rescue, then step back and go the pause button. Yeah. And when you pause, then you can go, okay, so let's see how you might be able to navigate that. If you're a bit anxious about where do you think you might sit, let's see if you could perhaps catch the train. We can catch the train with you a couple of times, and then you could perhaps do it yourself next time, and maybe even call me when you're finished catching the train. Being able to
0: manage setbacks and failures and disappointments and losing is a really big part of being a resilient human being. And I, we still haven't found the person who changed the past the parcel rules <laughs> because you and I both know that under five is a great time to work out. It, it's not nice when we don't get what we want and it's not nice to be left out and it's not nice to not get the prize. So I guess that is, I find, one of the big challenges today is that our parents want to protect our children from these moments. So we can't really learn emotional buoyancy without experiencing what it isn't. No. What other opportunities can parents embrace before they get to school, with siblings or with those in their long daycares, that help them know
2: no one likes losing. Let's validate it and give them opportunities to grow through it. I actually think that this is uh, the pass the parcel is just a brilliant game for that. And letting other people win the prize and then being able to say, to celebrate. And if you've got a child who throws a huge tantrum because they didn't win the prize, well, that's just how it is. Yeah, They it's... won't throw the huge tantrum every single party. They'll probably do it the first time and maybe even the second time. But the third time they will have worked out that they have to pause yes. and they have to suck yep. it up and let someone else win. Um, And that's okay. And in fact, as a parent, they're the teachable moments. Every single time that a child fails or misses out or is benched, you know, if they're playing cricket and they're the 12th man and they're benched every week and they never ever get a chance to actually get on the field, that's a a teachable moment, a teachable moment of being patient, a teachable moment where they're, they're not the actual center of the universe.
0: There is a big difference, isn't there, between surviving life and thriving in life. But I think one of the lessons that I would really love families um, to come to understand is that sometimes, you know, bad stuff happens to really good people and life turns up sometimes not how we'd like it to be. That that's, you know, in childhood, letting our kids know that life isn't always this wonderful, predictable, wonderful, happy place. And I, I worry a bit about the pressure on us to be happy all the time.
2: Well, that happens when we have trauma, that happens when we have grief, when we lose a grandparent, and that's the times when we need to learn to let our children be part of that process. I think grief and sadness and trauma has an opportunity in itself.
0: What I often notice is a child may be ready to stretch and grow, but not necessarily mum and dad are this beautiful A couple come up to me after a seminar with an eight-year-old, and he wanted to run or go to the end of the street and buy milk and bread like Daddy used to when he was eight. And they said we're just still too terrified. And I said, so if you have that conversation, if you need to go and talk to the neighbours, talk to the shopkeeper. It was on the same side of the road. I said, then give him the chance. And um, they did contact me later, and it was really funny because the boy was so excited he was going to have the chance. And as he was walking down the footpath towards the shop, he turned around and mum and dad were on the footpath. And he said, get inside. <laughs> it doesn't count if you're still watching me. Anyway, so she said, they went inside. Meg, it was the longest 10 minutes of my life, but all of a sudden the doors banged open and my son's come in saying, I've got them. And holding them like a trophy and my wife and I dissolved in tears. And she said, look, it's, you know, we're a few weeks down the track and we just
2: give him $10. And I guess as a parent, one of the things is, is actually in that process of our own development. Our own development as parents is to move away from being egocentric ourselves because when we're egocentric, we're sort of worried about getting blamed for things and we're worried about getting into trouble and we're worried about whether we've done the right thing as a mum or a dad. But in actual fact, when you are developing and maturing, you stop worrying so much about yourself and you think about what is good for the other person. And in that process you then start raising a child and it might make you look like you're not the best mum on the block. I love that. But it might mean that you have a child who is able to cross the street and know Mm. how to look both ways and also you've got a child who's able to look someone in the eyes and say thank you and think about the change and then smile at somebody and then make their day feel better. The process of letting go begins the moment the child is born. Oh, Lynn, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.
0: A dad got in touch recently to ask me why his 6-year-old daughter still wants everything done for her. She's struggling with wanting to be independent, and he admits he finds it easier just to dress her, pack her lunch, because it's a battle every single day. So, daddy, you've done such a good job <laughs> of taking care of your child that she now really believes you're the only one who can do these things. So, these habits that you've formed are very strong. My suggestion is you need to start with a tiny step of a new habit. Remember, it takes time. So maybe she needs to be able to possibly dress herself. Maybe not do shoelaces all at once, but let her get to dress herself. And immediately, she's dressed herself. Get really excited. Ta-da! High fives, big hugs, Yoo-hoo! And that feeds something very special inside her. When she's nailed that, then it might be teeth, it might be putting lunchbox in the bag, and it might just be given a go at doing those shoelaces. I also heard from a mum on what I think is such a big part of building resilience. Her son, who is eight, loves to play chess with her, but he hates to lose. I mean, really hates it. She wants to know if she should ever botch the game to let him win and what's a good balance between winning and losing in board games with kids. Well, Mama, don't ever botch the game. This is a serious learning experience you've got going on here. So my my tips for you in this one, can you also play lots of quick turnaround games so that your son gets to learn to lose lots and lots, like noughts and crosses or connect for or something that's a quick turnaround. Chess is a big, long wait. So you know what? That means that the disappointment's bigger. I want you to practice disappointing him in much more shorter spaces. And then also have honest conversations that losing sucks. No one enjoys it. And that in your family, having a go, being a participant is actually really important. And that winning is just like a bonus, but it's not everything. So parents, it can be hard to let go, but life isn't always going to be fair. And every time a child loses or fails at something, it's an opportunity for them to learn how to become more resilient. Next time on Parental as Anything...
1: Is your tween begging for their own phone? My 11-year-old daughter really wants one for her birthday and we're trying to decide whether that's okay. It seems like tweens are getting phones younger and younger.
0: You're not alone. But should you bow to the pressure and just give them one? Find out on Parentalist Anything on the ABC Listen app. This episode of Parental as Anything was recorded and produced on Ngunnawal and Gadigal Country.
1: When was the last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing
0: a year. And there's a teensy-weensy problem. It's about to cause an environmental apocalypse. I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads. From the marketing tricks that are being used on us right now to the lies. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Threads. Threads. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.